This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your relationship coach, your guide on the side. Doing what we can on this program to help you live longer and love stronger. My friends, have we got a great show for you. To, for you Coming up in just a minute, Sir uh, Kerry Cooper will be joining us. Yes, uh, somebody that has been knighted. Sir Kerry Cooper will be joining us. And he's going to be talking about work emails that actually make you, uh, let's just say, stupid. According to our guest, we'll be talking about uh, the impact that your email may have on some of the results you're getting. We'll get to that in just a few minutes. But before we uh, we dive too deeply into our work emails, let's uh, let's check in with Terry. Find out what's going on around the world. Terry, any news? Any any important stories? We just got to talk about. There's all kinds of important stories. Have you heard of? Uh, have you ever had a desire to go to space? No. You don't want to be an astronaut. Never. Never as a kid. Uh, yeah, a little bit as a kid, but then you know. You grow out of that. Yeah, I grew out of it. Like you want to be a firefighter yeah. or a police officer. You know why? I don't like Tang. Okay, I think they've moved beyond that. Oh, oh, have they? Yeah, they might have something more, more developed than Tang. Okay, though yeah. Tang is pretty good. I mean, it is. It's just so sugary. It's a high quality breakfast drink. <laughs> if you've ever had a test at the hospital where they make you drink that, the dye. And oh the, yeah, 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 yeah. So it reminds me of Tang. Really? I've actually never had that, but I've seen my wife drink it. Ugh. Bah. Turns everything blue. Yeah. No, it actually turns it all. I don't know what it turns it. But I mean, I guess on the the yeah, uh, on the scan, the scanner all comes yeah, out probably blue. does, yeah. Iridium or something, yeah. Tang. That's why you got to watch out for it. Oh, New so, ideas about Tang. So wh- why? So why do you ask? We have an astronaut from our country named Scott Kelly. Yeah. Yes. He is in the International Space Station. He is he is living on that the space station for he's been there for two hundred nineteen or so days. Right. As the writing of the the information I have here. Um, he, he it's pa- it's part of his year long mission. He's going to spend one year in space. Wow! The whole point is we're preparing at some point to go to Mars. Yeah, but we don't know what weightlessness and zero gravity does to the human body over a prolonged period of time. So you put him up there, he floats around. He's on TV. I mean, he's you can watch him. I think on the NASA channel. Yeah, on your your. Is he just and he's just. He's just hanging out up there. He he gets on there and talks. He did some Halloween type things, and he sent some videos to scare people. And I mean, pretty much everything that happens down here, he's up there commenting on, and and he's having this back and forth with you know ground control, I guess you call it. <laughs> so I guess my question is, do you think he still feels isolated, even though he has a lot of contact? Yeah, he does. Don't you think that would be weird? I mean, everyone's watching you. You can't do anything without, you know, 15 people knowing it. Right. At all hours of the day, someone's monitoring you. But there's probably a difference between that and being, like, connected to people, you know? Like, it's just, you can be in your house with your family and nobody, you still have some privacy. Even when he goes to the restroom, they're all like, "Uh, yeah, so where's Scott? (laughs) Oh, Scott's going to the bathroom. I'll be right back. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Scott, we need to know uh, how many ounces you evacuated from your body. Oh boy. Okay. Well, here we go. I mean, that it's like so. I I think it that's got to impact his head. Is he married? Do we know? Um, I don't know much information about him personally. Because what a big, honestly, that is a seriously 
big contribution. He's going to be gone for one year. Imagine if you're married. Imagine your kids, you know, do they call every day and say, hey, Dad? Because it's such a – that's such a sacrifice. Just Skype for breakfast, right? Yeah. And just think of that. I mean, even a Skype just isn't – when was the last time he got a hug? I mean, I guess other astronauts, when they come to the space station, they'll hug on him. I don't know. I think that would be so Yeah, he's not lonely. completely alone up there. No. There's other people rotating through, but he's just going to stay. Have you seen Martian? Not yet. No, I haven't. Oh, you got to see Martian. Talk about that would be lonely right there. Um, but And then eventually you just end up talking to yourself. So it says that Kelly was born in New Jersey. He uh, went to West Orange. He's in that community. Yeah. If you know where that is. No. He went to, there's his high school. He, he has an identical twin named Mark. Oh, my heavens. So that would be interesting is to study his identical twin versus him after he gets back. And I see. wonder if that's why they're doing the study. Maybe. He is divorced and has two daughters. He has yeah. a long-term relationship with... Uh, another woman, his sister-in-law, is Gabrielle Giffords, the former congresswoman from Arizona. I believe she was the one that was shot. Oh, that's right. I wonder if Mark is the other astronaut. That would be maybe the— that He's an astronaut, too. The husband. So I've, there you go. Interesting. So we've, we've, we've learned something more about Scott Kelly today. That so, is cool. Uh, the commander had such a good time uh, getting in the Halloween spirit from space, but now there's much a much bigger occasion to celebrate Monday— which was last week, marks 15 straight years of human presence aboard the space station. Wow. The 16-man crew of U.S., Russian, and Japanese astronauts will commemorate the anniversary with a special dinner. The, uh, this is all from the Associated Press. Since November 2nd of 2000, 220 astronauts from 17 countries have taken up home in the orbiting lab. Collectively, they've eaten more than 26,500 meals. Wow. Let's hope at least some of them looked more appealing, and then they had a picture of this cheeseburger thing that they eat. You've seen some yeah. of the astronaut yeah. food. But did, did, did they have any tang? I, I'm not sure. They don't really have a full coverage on the availability of <laughs> we tang. Need, it's not a space trip without tang. That's just what I know. And so, is he, so that's interesting because so when he comes back, let's say they find out that man can't stay in space for longer than a year. Yeah. That's going to blow a lot of minds. That's going to blow up pretty much every mission. So then the question is, do we have to stay in a pressurized suit the yeah. entire time to Mars? What is right. that? You know, there's just yeah, you have to try to figure out a new problem, a new hurdle to get by. And I guess radiation levels have got to be, mm-hmm. I guess, fairly normal. But it seems like they wouldn't be. I don't know. And, and, and maybe maybe they have to fi- figure out artificial gravity. Hmm. In, in all the movies, you just rotate. You, and that's how you do it. You just spin the whatever vessel you're in. That's right. And then they don't address the whole issue. So right. they just so that, that's well, why it's it, spinning. We we have gravity. That's why they need more. <laughs> that's why they need more movies up there, so that we can show NASA how to do it right. I don't know because most of the movies that have to deal with being in space are disaster movies. That's like true. you may want not want to go to the space station and watch Gravity. <laughs> not the movie you need to see. Do you think they get a watch TV? Because you'd think after a year, he's got two daughters. He's got to stay up on all the pop culture, right? He's yeah. got to watch Martian. And do you watch Martian? I don't know. Because in the movie Martian, they intercept, I think. Don't ruin it. Okay. <laughs> it's just really good. You really need to look into it. It's a great movie. But it's a disaster movie. Um, on ish, some level, but it's it's a pretty cool. And then movie. it's a survival and yeah. power of the human yeah. spirit. Blah 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 blah. Save yeah, a soul. 
just one guy, one all guy. these people, all this money to right. save one guy. Yeah, it's worth it. It's, it's, I've been told it's a great movie. Yeah, you got to see that. That's the movie. That's the movie you should be investing in. Not James Bond or Star Wars. I mean, you can invest in those, but you're like yeah. you're really investing. You're throwing your money way ahead of their release. So that's that's like well, that's how much I'm anticipating. Yeah, those. If I would have read the book The Martian, maybe I would anticipate the movie The Martian. Yeah, but you never saw the Bugs Bunny Martian. I saw that one. Marvin. That's what he, they didn't have him on the movie. He wasn't on a movie, uh-uh. but he was the original Martian. I know he wasn't there. No, nope, Hollywood failing us again. Yeah, letting us down <laughs> one movie at a time. Yeah, I don't know that I could do that. And I think I would probably go crazy. And then even when you're calling and talking to your girls back home, yeah. you're still being monitored. Yes. So it's like you're just it's it's got to be different. Well, I mean, it's neat for the kids. Yeah, my dad's in space. Yeah. I mean, sure, we're not going to see dad for a year, but well, you will. Every what does day. your dad do for a living? Oh, mine's just in a space station yeah. breaking records. Jimmy's dad's an accountant. His yeah. dad's a lawyer. My dad's in space. Jerry's a milkman. <laughs> I mean, it's like, how do you compete? There's no topping that. And, but bring your dad to work day. I mean, you, you can yeah. bring your dad to school. He just Skypes in. Well, that would take probably a lot of effort from NASA. Yeah. But they probably did it. I bet they do it. They're all about, Those you girls know, deserve it. education that way. So That's cool. Man, thank heaven someone's willing to do it. Uh, I have some people I'd love to send there. I'd like to send you to space. <laughs> yeah. We'll find somebody to send up there. Anyway, interesting um, interesting stuff. And it, it kind of brings back our next guest uh, down to earth, I guess. Work emails. Um, it, would you believe that they may be actually making you more stupid? They're slowing us down, folks. They They might be decreasing your efficiency. They might be taking you off focus. So we've uh, we've put together a really great interview. That we're going to pick up in, in uh, after this break with Sir Kerry Cooper. It's an interview we did a few months ago, um, but it's a must-hear type of interview. So stick with us. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll be talking with Sir Kerry Cooper about your work emails and how they're impacting your intellect. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. And one of the great uh, benefits of the show this week is we are going to go back and do some uh, replays of old interviews that uh, that you probably haven't heard. They were wonderful interviews um, back in the day, and they just are just as important as they are to us today as they were then. Uh, for example, did you know that in 1971, Ray Tomlinson developed the code that allowed him to send an email between two computer programs. Now, by the way, this emailing uh, phenomenon has spread and morphed into something that none of us could have ever imagined, right? Emailing has changed the way we do business and even our lives that we live. But are we emailing too much? What is all this email doing to our personal relationships and our family life? We are going to be uh, replaying an interview that I did with Professor Sir Kerry Cooper, who's a distinguished professor of organizational psychology and health at Lancaster University, management of school in Lancaster University in the U.K. And uh, when I started the interview, I had to ask him how an American ever received the address or the title of Sir. That's how I started the interview. Great to have you on the show. Now, we have to just address the title Sir. So you have you have been knighted? 
Yeah, I'm a dual citizen. I'm an American. I was at, um, I did my uh, MBA, my undergraduate degree, my MBA at UCLA. I'm a, from LA. I'm an LA boy. Oh, great. And I came over to England uh, over 45 years ago to uh, to come for a year and ended up doing a PhD here and have never left. Did you really? So I'm, uh, and I became a British citizen about 25 years ago and I was knighted by the Queen last year. How, congratulations. What an honor. Thank you. There can't be, a, so there can't be a lot of, those American British citizens, right, that no, are knighted. There are not many. There are not many. I'm very, very proud of it. Well, that is that. All my family, of course, are dual citizens, so all my kids are British and American. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, we we appreciate you joining us. And this topic no is real. You were just putting together a paper, right, a, pr- a presentation for a conference, and then I, I yeah. guess some of your comments about email created a little firestorm. A little bit. Well, what I was doing is I, it was the British Psychological Society, the equivalent of the American Psychological Association. So the British Psychological Society's annual conference, I gave a keynote address, and I was talking about mental well-being in the workplace. How do we enhance our well-being, reduce the stress levels, and talking about the research on it. Yeah. And one of the things I mentioned in the talk was an hour talk to an audience of probably about 1,000 people was, you know, just the fact that electronic overload, that emails were actually, were supposed to be our social support system to help us right. in our work. And what they've become is a major source of stress because people are now overloaded, totally overloaded. And it's because the technology is managing us and we're not managing it. So, for example, um, people are now CCing and everybody else on emails, yeah. so we're getting tons of emails People are not telling people who they send emails to the priority of it. People are dumping emails on you. That's one element. So it's about a work overload element. But the second and I think really worrying element is the fact that they are now all pervasive, that they we're looking at our emails all day long. So if you go to a restaurant in the U.K. and you see a family sitting at a table uh, you know, a husband, a wife, or partners, and two kids, what you're going to see is them all looking at their smartphone. Oh, yeah. Don't you hate and that? they're not talking to one another. Right. And, and they're accessing it at home at night, and they're accessing it at the weekends. You see them on holidays doing that. So actually, work has intruded into people's private life. And we have no idea the long-term impact of this, right? I mean, that we're, we barely have enough data on it. No, we don't. I mean... There is some research on electronic overload, and funny enough, I'm working with a, a professor in a management information systems to look at this as an area and try to collect all the the science that's been done. But there's not a hell of a lot of science yeah. on it, actually. Oh, yeah. But we know, everybody knows, and the fact I just mentioned it in this one conference was picked up by all the media were in the, you know, the, the Times and the mm-hmm. Daily Mail. All the media were in my, my talk, and that's the thing they picked up on. And it went viral globally. And it's because we all know it. I mean, yeah. we almost don't need the science. No. We already know that emails intrude in our private life. It's we intuitive. People, yeah, it's intuitive. And I think the other element, which kind of troubles me, is even within a workplace, uh, what you get is you have people sending emails to somebody four desks down oh. or one floor up. So true. So we're avoiding and, each other, really. Well, and they're doing it because it's easy. But what they're failing to do is that is not good for team building. It's not good for communications. It's really not good full stop for organizations to have it. In fact, 
in Britain, there are a number of organizations, public and private sector bodies, who are banning emails within the same building. Really? So you cannot. If you want, yeah. if you want to, you have to go to the guy in the next floor up and talk to them and bring your file with you <laughs> rather than send it by email. You're going to make me move? I mean, really, just, we, we're going to have a guest a little bit later. That's oh, he, his his goal is always to have us standing more and moving more. Just the health benefits of everyone having to go talk to each other exactly. would change everything. By the way, he's, you're absolutely right. I think that's another critical element of it. It's about team building. It's about physicality. Yeah. It's about kind of getting up and everything else. There are even there's several companies and a couple in the U.S. now who have decided that because they keep giving guidelines, a lot of senior management say to their staff, here's what we want you to do. We don't want you to access your emails at the weekend unless it's urgent. We want you really not to do it too much at night when you get home. You know, work-related emails. Yeah, yeah. Just forget about it. Rest, recuperate. And because they're not hearing the message, there are companies now shutting off their server at night and over the weekend. Yeah, you're not accessing work. Stop people accessing their emails. So I think we've got to learn how to manage it better. I think we have to do something because it's taking us over. I love that idea. I mean, and it's I mean, it's extreme, but there are some people that will never stop. And and I do a lot of work with couples. And, you know, a lot of times we think that, you know, divorce is not impacting my business life, but it entirely is. So if I if I don't have healthy relationships at home, it's going to impact my work life. And yet my work life is also impacting my home relationships. It's a big system, isn't it? No, no, you're right. It is a vicious circle because it's certainly the case that if you go home and you say, oh, well, you know, because it's so easy, isn't it? Sure. With a smartphone, with an iPhone or some other smartphone, it's so easy. Just say, well, just take a look. The minute you take a look and you see an email, you say, well, don't worry, dear. I'll be back in 15 minutes. I've got got to deal with this. Then you start, and then how about your kids who say, "Hey, Dad, um, you know, help me with my math. Uh, just one minute. I'll have. To, uh, I'll be there in twenty minutes. I just mm. got to deal with this email." And and I think it's become very disruptive to people's personal lives. Great technology, we need it. I'm not a luddite saying yeah. we should dump it. I'm just saying let let's manage the technology rather than let it manage us. Yeah, we, we, need to, we need to take it over. Again, we're talking with Professor Sir Kerry Cooper, uh, who really just, to me, I love it that something as simple as, you know, you know, talking honestly about emails and the impact they're having on our work-life balance would create such a stir. But uh, he's teaching us some pretty interesting information that we already know in our hearts, but we, we need some more tools, I think. Let's take a break. We'll come back more with Professor Sir Kerry Cooper and uh, hopefully get some more ideas for how, how we turn it off a little bit more. What are some rules we should be using with our own email management and uh, what we could bring to our companies to make email a healthier part of our work life, not something that uh, slowly tears us apart emotionally, physically. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Taking care of business. Checking your email. 
The funny thing about it is we set our emails to go off every time you get one. Are you kidding me? So if you get 100 emails a day, your phone's going to vibrate 100 times? You better answer it. That little distraction is going to take you minutes to get back on track. Uh, joining us is uh, Professor Sir Kerry Cooper um, from Lancaster University uh, Management School in Lancaster University in the U.K., he uh, is the author of a book or of an article, Work Email is Making Us a Generation of Idiots, Time to Switch Off. And that comes from a quote Albert Einstein once wrote. He said, I fear the day that technology will surpass our human interaction. The world will then have a generation of idiots. <laughs> but you know what? It's so true. Professor Sir Kerry Cooper, welcome back to the show. Yeah, he he was uh, he could foresee it, couldn't he? Yeah, he totally did. Great foresight. He didn't foresee emails. No, <laughs> he would yeah. have been decimated by that. Yeah, can you imagine? But I mean, but we are becoming kind of idiotic, even in just how we respond to it. Like it is our master. Oh, it is totally. I mean, there are things I think we can do, Matt. Okay, yeah. so let me let me tell you some of the things I think we could. Do. Yes. Number one, we should never CC in other people unless they're absolutely fundamental to the email. But because everybody's trying to cover their backside, yeah, exactly. what they tend to do is copy in everybody in the workplace, you know, uh, let their boss know what they're doing. Look how hard their, I'm working. You know, yeah, uh, Their boss's boss know what they're doing. Everybody, even if it's irrelevant directly to them. Yeah. So I think if we all said, okay, no CCing in anybody unless they're directly implicated in what this is all about. Hmm. That's one. Love it. Second thing is I think when we send emails to other people, we should tell the other people the priority of it. So say, for instance, the other day I got, say, 60 emails. I was in a meeting for two or three hours, two and a half hours, and I got 60 emails in that period of time. So because I didn't know what the priority of it was, I knew most of the people who'd done it. It wasn't spam because I have a spam filter anyway. Yeah, yeah. I had to open up every email. Now, if I had got an email from Fred and it would have said really high priority, high priority being I need your response today. And you know today. who Fred is. So if Fred's your boss and you have a high priority, Fred boom, is. you know exactly so where if, it fits. You know, there'll be situations in which I won't know him. Right. But if it's all people that you know and you work with on a regular basis, if they said it's high priority or medium priority, defining that as – I need a response today. I don't need a response for the next couple of days. I don't need a response for a week. Hmm. Or this is just informational. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, so that way we can do what we used to do when we got snail mail, when we got letters. What we would do is most people who were reasonably effective managers of their of their work would you know uh, prioritize it with, right. with that stack I have to deal with today. The next stack I have to well we have to do the same and. The other option, of course, is just to print off all your emails and stack them up, but that's taking time too. Yeah, exactly. So I think the best thing is we we need that to to happen as well. I think the notion that nobody should be able, nobody should send an email to the same person to people in their office building, unless the building's a thirty-story building. (laughs) Yeah, right. Thirty-story building with a really slow elevator. Two or three-story building. Good to get up and walk anyway. Very important eyeball-to-eyeball interaction. Good for team building. Do not allow emails to be sent to anybody in the same building. Well, see, and I – you know what's Um, interesting? I I like sending emails because I don't want to interrupt the person. But in reality, 
it's it is making me so I don't I don't get to know people. I don't have a relationship, a one on one, an eye to eye. I'm not learning. I'm not exactly. strengthening those skills. Yeah, in, in, indeed, I think there's sometimes as well. If you've got a difficult problem with somebody, right? Yeah. And we all do, whether it's a customer or a patient or a student or whoever, a colleague, a work colleague or a boss, the worst thing you can do is send an email. If there's any difficulty in the relationship or the thing you're talking about is kind of personal and difficult, you should always do that on a telephone or eyeball to eyeball. You should never, ever do that sort of thing by email. It's just not a good way to to respond. And also that applies to companies. Companies should never send difficult messages to employees Mm. by email. So a difficult message might be we're being taken over. Yeah. Uh, You know, there'll be some job losses. Uh, you know why? In, why you should never do things like that by email. Or ten percent of people are going to be. Well, we, in Britain, we call it being made redundant. That means job loss. Oh boy, you know, it, it does. No it reminds difficult. me of like yeah. an office segment. Uh, you know, whether it's the whether it was your, you know the, the the show, the television show, The, the Office. Original, the original yeah, Office from one, England. I know. Ricky Gervais. Yeah. Like it reminds me of that, and I think. I mean, we, we, it's almost like we're surprised by this technology. It's kind of taking over. But you're, you're an organizational behavior guy. This is something that as a company, we should control. Like, we could easily do training on what our protocols for ranking an email are. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, what's we, the one, two, three? All, you're, Matt, you're absolutely right. We could do all the training on these areas, but we don't. No. And sometimes you get a company with guidelines, but nobody ever reads them. So what they do is they email you the guidelines. <laughs> exactly. Here are the guidelines. The irony. And please read it. Here it's it's important. You should follow. But people are so bloody busy doing their emails. Yeah. Oh, that's the other thing. So you meet somebody. Uh, I meet people at, at, not only in my university, but in the workplace because I do research in big companies. And I'll say, so what did you do today? You know, just to open a conversation as I'm ready to interview them for some work I'm doing on stress. And they'll say, well, I had a really good day. I was able to manage to do all my emails. I said, no, no, I didn't ask you that. I said, what did you do today? What did you produce? What did you write? What did you do? Not emails. Emails is not doing work. You know what? But it's, that's it. To do work. It's almost that's the illusion, isn't it? Because we are yeah. killing ourselves answering our emails, and yet it's probably stealing real production. It's taking away. It's stealing real time. Yeah. Which is the other thing. Should you have pings on your, your computer or your your smartphones telling you when you're getting an email? And the answer is no, you shouldn't. Right. Because all that's going to do is make you curious about who contacted you and stop you doing work. I've even seen people just schedule. Okay, so at, at 9 I will check my email and at noon I will check my email and at 3 I will check my email. That's a smarter that's a smarter idea. And then we have the other problem which you don't have in the US because the Americans don't take, tend to take holidays. But in Europe we have between 4 and 6 each country mm-hmm. has slightly different. But the minimum a country in Europe would take would be 4 weeks off on holiday. Right. Like in July or in August or 6 weeks. In the U.K., most people have holidays that are four to six weeks long. Now, unlike the Americans who maybe have a max of two weeks, and most of them don't take it anyway, which is wrong in and of itself, by the way, makes makes the Americans less productive, in my view. Uh, But but the problem we now have is because people are actually doing – if you 
the surveys are showing that people are doing uh, their emails while they're on holiday because it's so easy to do it on their smartphones or take a laptop. Ugh. Yeah, and, and that, then, that just ruins everything. The point is you're supposed to spend personal disposable time with your kids, your loved one, da-da-da-da-da-da. Well, and that shakes up your and head, right? That takes you – It mean, shakes your head up. That's and great. what if you get an email that says something, something serious has gone wrong with the project you're involved in? Are you going to relax the rest of the week? Mm-mm. No. You're stuck. So it's, and it's going to cause you tension while you're on holiday with your family. So that's the thing we have to learn how to control. I thought of an interesting – technology that we could use. I don't know what? why somebody hasn't thought of it. But what about this? What about uh, having a software that alerts you when you're working at night or at weekends, and you could, con- you could work for holidays too. You could fit it in with holidays, where if you do a few emails on a Friday night at 8 o'clock, it comes back to you and says, why don't you spend time with your yeah. family and friends? Get a life, idiot. Yeah, kind of a thing. <laughs> but really, we that, need something. We do. Ping we, us that says, "What the hell are you doing?" Yeah, because we would respond. Eight o'clock. That's right. Sending work-related emails. That's, I, mean, I have I have seen people though send an email at two in the morning, and you're like, "Oh yeah, what?" But it's there's almost there's almost kind of a like a psychic income that people get. Their psyches are stroked because look how hard I'm working. But in reality, exactly. you're dysfunctional. You're not even... It, it's what we used to say in the old days before we had computers and emails. It was jacket on the back of the chair syndrome. Mm-hmm. You leave your jacket in the office. Yeah. You go home, but everybody thinks you're still just going <laughs> to get something to eat. And you're going to come back to work. Effectively, with the, we have the electronic version of that, which is sending an email at 10 o'clock so at night. true. We're speaking with Professor exactly. Sir Kerry Cooper, uh, again, from Lancaster University Management School in Lancaster University in the UK. He is um, a distinguished professor of organizational psychology. Does this, I mean, this doesn't go away, Professor Sir Carey, unless we do something different, right? We have to own it. We have to lead it. I think so. I, I mean, I don't think you're going to get companies shutting off servers at night right. and over weekends. They just won't do that. Uh, and there are uh, there's a major investment bank that you know, an American one in London, which has told all their employees at the weekends, do not access your work emails. Mm. We don't want you to unless you're in a major international merger and acquisition deal or something like that. Yeah. But if you're not involved in a deal, don't do it. I think you can – not, we're not going to shut the servers off. So, and, and employers are realizing there's a lot of downtime. So we have employers here who have – forbid intranet emails within the same building, but they'll never shut the servers. Mm -mm. And they do give guidelines. Many companies are starting to give rough guidelines, very rough. Um, But I think ultimately it's us. We have to manage our time better. We have to get better balance in our lives. Number one, while we're at work, really we have to get on and do things, create things. Whatever we do, we're mainly in the U.S. is basically a service-based economy, knowledge-based economy, um, just like the most of Western Europe. A lot of, a lot of the heavy manufacturing has gone to the Far East. So, given that, you know, we have to manage our time properly, to the extent that uh, we say to ourselves, um, "Look at what I want to do is get this job done, invent that, create that, produce that." do that and say to myself, maybe three times a day I'll access my email. Mm-hmm. Also, when I send an email to somebody, I'm going to say how important it is. 
also, I'm not going to copy in the whole world <laughs> and every boss I've ever had uh, and all of that. I think we just have to learn ourselves how to do it and manage it. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so my kids, I have uh, kids in London. And when I go have dinner with a couple of them in London, um, you know, I noticed one one about two years ago, we're all sitting there looking at our smartphones. I know. During a no, meal. I know. How, how old, but your said, kids are. It. I'm are, not paying for this meal ever again. <laughs> If any of us do it, and that includes me. So I know. We all shut it off now. Well, I have we close teens. Down. I have teenagers that the minute we all sit down at a restaurant, foink, all the phones come out. And, Absolutely. And I sit there and I think, well, what's the future of this? Is I mean, eventually, I guess we could just Skype in dinner. We could just, you know, conference call it exactly. in. Exactly. Don't you think it's sad? Because, it I mean, the whole important point of having a family is we're supposed to relate to one another, yeah. invest in one another, listen to one another. Connect. Kids need us listening to them. Yeah. And, uh, and, I, and when I go to restaurants, I see very little of it now, very little interaction. Well, it's almost like the busyness has taken over, and we get more value apparent from apparent busyness than from real results, which is what you were just telling us. If we are at work yep. getting real results, it should buy us the freedom to not answer that email in the middle of the weekend. Because... I'm a producer. I don't I'm not going to produce for you in the middle of the weekend. But you you still can try to interrupt me. It's so exactly. interruptive is really what it is. Oh, it is. It's totally disruptive and you lose concentration of listening to other people, which is really quite important in relationships. And ultimately, investing in relationships both in the workplace and outside is important for all of us. I mean, if you think about it, if we're basically a service-based economy, uh, you don't need even broadcasting. You could have an ISDN line at home. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You don't even need to uh -uh. be in an office. Now. No. You could. I could Nobody be sitting. Yeah. To be, in my pajamas. You could be sitting at home. I could be sitting at That's home. Right. I could be skyping in my lectures. Mm -hmm. I don't need to be in an. Why are we coming into an office? Because we need the social interaction, and we, as human beings, we need it. And yet, the technology is kind of moderating that and getting in the way. Yeah, keeping us from actually having the relationships. It is It is keeping us from having the relationship. One of the benefits of my job, I also have, I do a lot of coaching, relationship coaching, communication stuff. So a lot of yeah. people expect me, they expect to maybe email me and maybe think they might get a hold of me. But um, I think they also respect when I don't reply. Because yeah. they're, they're like, know that, oh, yeah, look at him. He walks his talk. But a lot of it is I'm not going to do it because it just, it's, I don't know. Yeah, I just feel like well, it's, it's interfering theft. with you. I mean, you have to set limits. It's yeah. like if you're trying to coach somebody and get them to, you know, whatever the, their problem is, you know, you're trying to help them set limits for mm -hmm. themselves. Exactly. Well, if you set a limit and say, listen, I'm a coach Monday to Friday till five o'clock. That's it. I'm right. off. I interviewed a chief exec of a major UK company. This was about 20 years ago. I mean, a big, big, not UK company, global company, yeah. but it was UK based. Big one and really great guy. And I'll never forget. And, and he said to me, I said, this is a killer job. I mean, you have plants all over the world in the US and China and everywhere. I mean, how do you have a family life? He says, I'll tell you what I do. I, said, I leave. I kill myself Monday to Friday. I'm prepared to work long hours. At Friday at 5 o'clock, I've told everybody in the office, unless a plant's burning down in Delaware <laughs> or in Beijing, yeah. I am not accessible. You do not call me up under any circumstances uh, until Monday morning. 
That's great. And that's the way he lived his life, a very yeah. successful guy. Well, and you look at the expectation he set. Everybody was clear. If there was an emergency, exactly. they probably know exactly how they could have communicated it. Exactly. And then he, you know, he could check his phone once a day. Yeah, I think if, you know, I think it's really quite important to do that. And uh, Love it. I try my best to do it, but sometimes I get carried away. Like I'll be on a holiday with my family in Portugal. And then I keep my mobile phone on in case because I have kids all over. the. I have four yeah. kids. So in case somebody else calls me up or something. But I'll get a phone call, and it might be a journalist saying, well, the BBC saying, could I call, talk about something? Mm-hmm. So I can only do it on my mobile. And I do it for five minutes, and then I feel guilty as hell. And then you got to get back to your you kids. Know what I mean? Yeah. I said, you yeah. know, but they're sitting by the pool. So I, the justification I use is, well, they're by the pool. Yeah. It's only five minutes, and it's not going to disturb me because it's not going to make me worry about something mm-hmm. at work. If it was a work-related one, I'd ignore it. Yeah. But, I mean, again, too, that's also part of your purpose, your mission. So, I mean, a little yeah. is fine, I guess. It's just – but you're also leading it, I guess, is the point. Most of us just let it just keep happening and happening. If you just let every journalist that wants you get you, then you're going to be trapped as well. So, Yeah, you're right. And in life generally, you just have to just manage it. People are quite happy if you say to them, funny enough now, in, in, at least in Europe – if you say, I'm sorry, I can't have that meeting at 6 o'clock because I have to be home with my family or my mm-hmm. grandchild or my daughter, they accept that now. Yeah. Do they really? But funny enough, 20 years ago, they wouldn't have. Right. No, right. You I know, think we're – yeah. I, I think that would, that would be weird in the U.S., I think, still. But I mean, yeah, but, the U.S. is – the U.S. is – I mean, being a dual citizen, being born in the U.S. or raised in the U.S., you know, and being an American, I mean, I, I think the U.S. is too workaholic, oh, way is. too workaholic. It, it, the hours that, that the U.S., that American workers work is just too long. And there's no evidence, incidentally, this is the organizational psychologist in me. There's no evidence that if you work long hours, you're more productive. No. There is tons of evidence. I even wrote a book on it with a colleague from Canada, which is uh, an edited book. We took all the best science in the world. It's called The Long Working Hours Culture. And we have found that if you consistently work long hours, you will get ill. <laughs> it will it'll make you ill. So it is good for getting you ill, making you sick. It's not good oh, for getting good. results. You consistently work long hours, great for you to get ill. <laughs> but the American mindset is long is good, right. it's effective, it's, it's productive. And, and it will pay off. There's no evidence that shows that. Right, right. Well, Professor Sir Kerry Cooper, we appreciate you. And I, I love your energy on it and your insight. I also, I mean, come on, a dual citizen, a, a, knighted, a knighted American. That's amazing. Congratulations. Yeah, I'm really quite proud because my parents, of course, my father was Russian. My mother was Romanian. I bet my they were proud. Russian, Ukrainian. My mother was R- Romanian. So I was first generation American. Wow. And I'm just proud, you know, as an American to have been honored by this country. Well, it also tells you you're living, you're living, you know. The principles. You're getting yes, results, so. and you're you're still able to get holidays. Yep, I certainly do. Well, we appreciate you, and keep up the great work. I can hardly wait to see more of your uh, your your articles that set off Thank the you uh, very fire. Much, Matt. Appreciate great you talking to you, you too, Carrie. Take care, my friend. Truly, uh, it's what it takes, folks. You have to have a belief, just like he was demonstrating, of what's right. Family, if that's what motivates you. Make the space for it. Even if it's just having friends or a healthy life, whatever you've got, we got to start managing our technology, folks. Eventually, it's going to own us. 
We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. More right after the break. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Love that. Uh, love that topic. Sir Kerry Cooper, for heaven's sakes. You know, it's it's technology, folks. It's not the master. You are the master. You are the agent here. We've got to figure out how to use it. One of the things I found, though, is you already know you're going to have vacation time. You already know you're going to have dinner tonight. You already know certain things that are so constant and consistent in your life. Can I just suggest do what you can to get, uh, for example, you don't have to tell everybody even where you're going. So if you have a family event tonight or you just want to get home to be with your family and somebody schedules a meeting at five o'clock, you don't need to say, oh, you know what? I've got family at five. Sorry, I've got to go see my family. You might feel embarrassed or weird about saying that. But you could just simply say, you know what? I've got something really important scheduled, so can't do that. And most of the time I found nobody cares. Nobody cares because everybody is kind of so worried about their own lives and their own schedules. They're not going to get too worried about yours. Now, if every appointment you can't make, that's going to be a little different. But let's just start using technology in a way to actually um, be additive to our relationships. But whenever you can, get up and talk to the person eye to eye. Uh, try not to be interruptive. You don't need to interrupt. You could just catch them when they're walking in the hall somewhere. I've done that with our boss, Don. Caught him right in the walk into the bathroom. And we had a 20-minute conversation, and he never got to go to the restroom. It was really sad. I felt bad for him. Anyway, it's technology, folks. Um, but it's also just conscientiousness. We need a little bit more conscientiousness. You may remember a few days ago we talked about a hero, um, a Georgia man named Michael Hammonds. He was a 46-year-old veteran. I don't know if you remember the story, but he saw a dog inside of a Mustang parked at a shopping center, and he was worried that the temperature in the vehicle was getting too hot, if you remember. So he kind of uh, took it under his own um, – you know, his own concern, and he went in and broke the window and got the dog out. He saved the dog's life. And so, interesting thing, uh, you know, there's all this talk about he's going to be arrested. He's going to be arrested. And he actually was arrested, and he ended up, um, they thought they were going to have to charge the guy. Well, long story short, they uh, they've they've basically dropped the charges. He's not going to be charged with it. He, you know, he was really worried. There are laws that you can break a window if a child's in the car, but, you know, he, he was, it was a dog. So It seemed like he found one of those flaws in the law. Yeah. Where it's, it's – the person got charged because they left their dog in the car. He tried to step in to help out the animal, but yeah. that in itself wasn't covered in any sort of – That was kind of a free – yeah, it was, a, it was just a floating obligation. No, no, no one finished the loop on – the good Samaritan who tries to help the animal who it's illegal that it's in the in the car anyways. And so, yeah. That's so cool. They'll probably pass some sort of legislation to fix that. Yes. 
I mean, the interesting thing, the the month after the legislation's passed, hundreds of windows would be broken. That's right. Oh, I was helping a dog. <laughs> every, uh, you know, every heart, tender-hearted person will start just shattering windows. I thought that was a dog. Oh, it was just a pillow? Okay, sorry. Oh, my bad. My bad. That was a real-looking pillow. Anyway, it's cool. It's cool that he's off, too. So, anyway, a little follow-up on that story. We, um, we're going to take a break, my friends. Uh, Did you ba- say I sent you an email? What? Just telling you I was back. Oh. I'd stepped out of the room. I sent you an email. I was standing right here. And oh, I, right here. Yeah. Just so I know you're back. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I actually did see that. I'm like, I didn't know that. Uh, I didn't know when you sent it. thought it would be helpful to send you another email. Well, word. you know, I have these two eye things that I, I saw you come back. Yeah, I understand, but. He's back. I sent you an email as well that I'm, I'm still here. I've been here the entire time. Oh, I didn't time. get that one. Oh, okay. Could you resend that? Yeah, I will. Thank you. Uh, is Michael Co- still copy here? Me on Mike that. needs Thanks. to CC me to make sure I know you're here. Okay. Yeah. I'll I'll just CC everybody in on it. We're going to take a break, my friends. More fun next hour. Making a case for football. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your relationship coach, your guide on the side, doing what we can on this program to help you live longer and love stronger. You watch the news, you don't always get uh, an in-depth coverage of the topics that you need, so we try to do that here on the show. Today, no exception, we've got a great guest coming up in just a few minutes. Declan Hill will be joining us. He's the author of the book, The Fix. Uh, um, it's called Soccer and Organized Crime, and it's an interview we did a few months ago. We wanted to bring it back and uh, let you listen to it again, especially in light of some of the new debate around some of these gambling sites, the sites that many are saying are gambling sites that are being advertised on uh, during football, Monday Night Football. It's those fantasy league sites, but uh, it might be kind of a little, uh, I don't know, interesting take on what could possibly happen to some of our our own uh, sporting groups and organizations here in the United States if we aren't careful. So we'll be speaking with Declan Hill in a moment. But before we do that, let's get to uh, the headlines, find out what's going on around the world with Terry South. Terry, anything interesting happening in the world today? There are. It's also kind of alarming Uh for those of us who work in offices. Uh Uh-oh. Have you noticed that working in an office affects you intellectually? Oh, for sure. <laughs> for sure. No, I mean, really. I am stir crazy. It messes my mind up. The lack of seeing the outside world uh-huh. as much? And my being... office, I don't have a window. Okay. I have a hallway. Yes, you see people and they walk. And they walk by, they you're, all look at me. You're at a T intersection yeah. of a hallway, so mm-hmm. you're right there, and everyone walking down the hallway looks right at you as they walk. It's kind of awkward to they, just ignore them. Many people in the building call it the monkey exhibit. Okay. Because I have a window that you can look in, and people will just walk by, and they look in. Some will stop, you know, press on the glass, <laughs> and like, jump, monkey, jump. That's uh, interesting. I try to avoid the hallway. Yeah. I unless I absolutely need to speak with you. I just, I know. just you know, let you have your moments. That's really good. That's so nice of you. It, but I do get stir crazy. And I think, you know what I think it is? I think it's um, sitting in a chair. My brain goes to sleep. I need a treadmill. Okay. A you know standing I mean? treadmill yeah. desk. 
That's what I need. I'm going to ask for that. I'm going to requisition. Do you think they'll put that in the budget for you? Probably not. Okay. You can ask. I mean, all they can say is no. That's true. That's a great. We had a guest on a while ago that gave us the, was a 30, 10. Yeah, the, the rules. Two rule. But, so you sit for 30. Yeah. You walk for eight. Yeah. And then, uh, or stand for two, walk for eight, something like that. And then don't you do Oreos for like 18? Yes. And then remainder of the hour is Oreos. It's exactly, Oreos. exactly. By the way, I'm nailing it. I've never, I usually don't take all of the advice of our guests, but that is the one piece of advice that I have nailed. You do go on a walk every day. I go on a walk and I listen to podcasts. Where do you walk? I can't tell you. That is a secret. Is it a different route every day? Or? Uh, sometimes. Sometimes I walk in reverse. Sometimes I Ooh, walk. You backpedal. I backpedal. Sometimes <laughs> I do a, a meander, I call it, a side, a little side, you know, a little sidewinder okay. walk. Sometimes a shuffle. I skip. Uh, now that I'm a grandpa, I do a little bit of the shuffle too. Okay. A little leg shuffle, shuffle, shuffle. Right. Um, but I try to do about three and a half miles of walking. And it gets me air. And it's usually show prep because I'm getting uh, a lot of cool blog stuff. Or not blog, yeah. Podcasts. Uh, podcasts. And sometimes YouTube. I'll, and sometimes I'll watch the TED Talks of our guests that are coming up. Or listen. Actually, I watch. You just watch them. That's why, As that's, you walk? That's when I shuffle. Uh-huh. Okay. It's good. But it gets me out. gets my head thinking. That's a whole other show about injuries because you're staring at your that's phone. Right. Yeah, no, your head's yeah, down. I do. That's scary. Well, this uh, some researchers found out that possibly the air in your office could be making you dumber. No, really? The like, air it's that you intellectually breathe. impacting me. Yeah. So it said they took 24 professionals, including engineers, designers, and architects, in a specialized office for six full days. It was really just a lab at Syracuse University. The office gave researchers the tools to alter levels of carbon dioxide and volatile organic compounds. Hmm. They call those VOCs. Yeah. It says on oh, a Oh, that's a Vox. A Vox. On, did we talked about that. Yeah, Vox and socks. There you go, Vox with the volatile organic compounds. Wow. Participants then took a cognitive test each afternoon that rated nine kinds of mental functioning, including information usage, strategy, and crisis response. The results are striking, says lead, re- lead researcher Joseph Allen. Participant scores rose an average of 61% on so-called green days when the volatile organic compounds in the air were lower. Wow. And 101% on green plus days, which had low VOCs, various CO2 levels, and high outdoor air ventilation rates, said the study. Holy cow. So they got, they with less Vox, yes. they performed better. 61%. And then a combination of less Vox, doesn't matter, I guess various levels of CO2, but then fresh air, mm-hmm. 101%. Holy cow. So if you just have a bad building with horrible circulation and, and you know, airflow... Bad, I you know, bad feng shui too. Let's just add that. Got to put feng shui in there. If the, pro, you know, if the seats aren't organized properly, then this could seriously be dumbing you down. So they say the CO two findings are particularly important, as analyst explains. For decades, nearly everyone has thought that carbon dioxide at the concentrations encountered in buildings had no effects on people. Sadly, typical buildings are designed to trap conditioned air in order to save energy. Yeah. That's how they're built. Right. No leaks, which raises the the VOCs and the carbon dioxide <laughs> levels. And that's that's because CO2 comes from everything everyday things like air fresheners, furniture, flooring, leaky furnaces, 
and the uh, the Vox come from paint and popular or from paint. So the paint on the walls gives you the uh, as they're calling them volatile organic compounds. Holy cow! Because think of schools too. The mm-hmm. schools that are these outdated old schools probably have all of the old models, poor circulation, and then we wonder why our kids are struggling. But we go through all the effort to seal them up so they're efficient. Yeah. Yeah, you're not yeah. losing the conditioned air. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, you're trapping in the air that we're not breathing fresh air. We're breathing chemicals and things that cause us, apparently, to lose intellect <laughs> on some level. Holy cow. So that's the problem. <laughs> I thought it was just me. But apparently it's the building. The building is working against you. See, the sad thing, we don't have that excuse here because we have an incredible state-of-the-art building. We do. With amazing uh, – well, the prob- the only downside is the temperature. It's cold. I live in a, I live in a freezer. Now, they've, they've adjusted it over the last few weeks. Yeah. When the temperature outside first started to dip from summer, all of a sudden they turned the AC on and it was really cold in here. Right. It dropped to like 60-something degrees. People, Everyone's in a jacket. And you're like, wow, that's kind of <laughs> cold. And now they've adjusted it up a little bit, but it's still chilly always. Yeah. And I actually don't mind that. I sleep a lot better. As do I. I sleep so much better when it's colder. So as I read this, it looks like the tip is open a window. Yeah. Because they said on the days when they had high outdoor air ventilation rate. Hmm. But... But a lot of people work in buildings where you can't open a window. But that's that looks like that's the finding of the the, the, the evidence here is you you have all this stuff in there. CO two, the carbon dioxide's yeah. there. The volatile organic compounds are coming from the paint. Right. Open a window. Yeah. Just let the natural air in, full of well, and then that's the other problem is what's out there if it's a bad the pollution day in your area. By the way, how many times has your wife just yelled, "Hey, open a window"? That's kind of what I was getting to. <laughs> Yeah, you got to be careful with that. But uh, okay, here's a question for you, yes. Professor. What do we do when there? I don't have a window to open. Well, you could bring an oxygen tank. Yeah, that's a good point. Breathe your own. Bring your own air. B Y O A. Hey, when I was going to this party and they said B Y O A, I didn't know what they meant. That was weird. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. If you're in an office like yours where there's no window, yeah. I, I guess you get to as as I this is talking walk. about your it's the paint. That's it's right. the paint, it's the furniture, it's the carpet, it's the glue, it's everything around you is causing this sort of more toxic environment to breathe. Do you think it's my shoes cuz I bring my walking and my running shoes? Could be the shoes. And I'm trying to decide do I need to bag them or do I just <laughs> leave them out? Bag and tag them. But apparently uh, my shoes emit a really large amount of VOC. VOC, as it's called. Volatile organic compounds. Holy cow. Well, this is Okay, this is good. I thought, again, I thought it was just my, me in my head. But So I need, I need more air, so my walking is probably appropriate and healthy. I need, more, um, uh, I need more sleep, too. Need more sleep. But when I'm in that room, nothing. I, I, I only get sleepy. Yeah. That's the that's probably the vox in the air. I think the it's air. the CO two levels rising. That's it. I'm slowly becoming asphyxiated. So there you go. Find okay. a window, open it, breathe the fresh air. Smarten up. That's a pretty basic little uh, rule set for you. Hey, we're going to take a break, folks. When we come back, we have a great uh, um, replay we're going to do of us of an interview we did with Declan Hill, and Declan is um, the author of the book The Fix. Soccer and Organized Crime, and he's uh, basically going to walk us through the impact of organized crime and gambling on 
the world of soccer, and you remember FIFA and all of the stories we heard about that. But I wanted to replay it simply because of all of these questions about these fantasy leagues and fantasy football. Is it gambling? Is it not? Anyway, Declan Hill will be up next, folks. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, you hear us talking a lot about on the show, you know, our favorite sports, World Series games, the NFL. You've also heard us recently talking about some of those uh, websites that are being accused of being gambling sites, DraftKings and FanDuel, when they're really, you know, they're fantasy football league uh, organizations. Many are questioning if they really are gambling types of organizations. So we wanted to go back into our archives and play an interview that we held with Dr. Declan Hill. And uh, you may remember he he was uh, somebody we interviewed back in the day about Sepp Blatter, who was the president of FIFA that was resigning. And uh, we talked to Declan Hill about the FIFA corruption and what goes on behind the scenes. And um, what he also uh, talked about was his book called The Fix, Soccer and Organized Crime, and all of the, the impact that gambling has as well in our professional sports. He even gave us a little uh, careful watch out that we ought to make sure that we don't get too much um, gambling involved in our sporting uh, activities. And um, we wanted to go air that interview for you. The first question I asked him when he comes, when you hear the interview, I just simply said, you worked with a gang to learn how they fixed the soccer matches. Is that right? Yeah, um, here, here's the here's the, the the backstory that all our listeners should know. Globalization has hit the sports gambling market. So ten, five, even five years ago, uh, the sports gambling market was all divided. If you wanted to to place a bet on a local team anywhere in the world, you'd probably have to talk to some guy in organized crime at a bar or something like that. Now it's all on the internet. And so you've got this huge liquidity measured in hundreds of billions of dollars. And so what various Asian gangs have done is they've they've started to travel around the world and fix major international sporting tournaments like tennis. Mm. Tennis has a massive problem. Uh, Soccer is endemic. Um, And uh, I, I was doing my doctoral research at the University of Oxford out in Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, and I got involved in one of the one of the, the gangs as they were fixing uh, the World Cup of Soccer in Germany in 2006. And I want to stress, not every game, uh, you know, not every team, but there are significant teams in these big international soccer tournaments that don't get paid. Hmm. They get ripped off. Their salaries are taken by corrupt officials, which turns back to our FIFA story. Yeah. And so you have a team from, I don't know, Africa or former Soviet uh, empire uh, showing up at these tournaments, and they're being ripped off. And then the, the, the Asian match-fixing gang will come, and they'll say, look, you're going to lose to Brazil. You're going to lose to Italy, one of the soccer superpowers. You may as well lose with eighty, ninety thousand 90,000 bucks in your pocket. Huh. And so they've been doing this for you know, almost uh, a generation. So back in the early 90s is when they started 
And uh, I got into this gang, uh, was around them uh, for a number of months uh, actively, and then even now I'm in contact with some of their rivals and some of their people that uh, uh, work against them. Um, so that, that's the basis of both my doctoral thesis and also my, uh, my, my number of my books. Wow. And so – and the fixing goes on. They just – they basically are saying, look, you're going to lose to Brazil. We just want yeah. to make sure it's a guaranteed loss. So we'll pay you eighty grand. Just throw the game. Totally. Yeah, each. So oh, you know, that's that's for the World Cup. So you're you're talking about you know you know northwards of a million bucks to to fix say an African team or former former Soviet team in in the World Cup. But in some of these smaller soccer leagues around the world, it's not costing that much money. And there have now my, my book, The Fix, kicked off sixty national police investigations around the world. In, in leagues that I didn't even know existed, like the Finnish second division, there's a, <laughs> a city where Santa Claus is supposed to live in oh, wow. the north of the Arctic Circle in Finland. Yeah. And lo and behold, uh, I was up there and, 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 and had a very painful interview with the owner of this local soccer team who devoted his life to making the soccer team uh, go, you know, ever since he was a teenager in his 70s. And he discovered, you know, uh, the morning that the Finnish organized crime task force came sweeping in and arrested the nine of his players that they'd been working with these Asian match fixers for years, fixing wow. games. I mean, it's so that it, that and that situation is repeated around the world. Yeah, uh, up here in Canada, uh, where you'd think, hey, civilized country, blah blah, blah would be would be spared this. No, we also have that problem up here as well. And it, what is it? I mean, it's is it is it more? You said endemic to soccer. But and tennis is that is is has got a part of it. We know cricket, in the cricket, the uh, U.S. European Olympics, handball, uh, you know, badminton. Uh, Interesting. Look, it, it's basically any sport that attracts gambling, uh, and now it's this gambling market. And and the, the, again, another fact because uh, it's an extraordinary story. But but the the fact that our listeners need to know is most of the liquidity on the globalized sports gambling market is in Asia. Uh, China, all those uh, Asian countries gamble like crazy, and it's uh, it, it, it's it's the countries, it's the sports that they are interested in. Mm. So those those betters mostly gamble on soccer. Uh, so that's why soccer has such an endemic problem. Tennis has a problem because it's the easiest sport in the world to fix. Yeah, right. To throw, isn't it? Uh, because yeah. so so the Asian uh, the Asian groups might be then paying off. An Italian team. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, there was a, 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 an organized crime task force that just made a series of arrests three weeks ago. Same week that Sepp Blatter, uh, uh, you know, and all that thing happened. So it, did, it got very little attention. But the organized crime task force moved in in Naples and arrested officials. Get this, Matt. I mean, mm. it's such a it's such a huge story. Thirty teams. Three zero Italian teams were in on the fix. Wow! Teams, um, you know that that's a significant proportion yeah. of their entire but, league. Yeah, that's pretty much was, in a league. <laughs> yeah, you know they were they were fixing on a regular basis uh, with an Andrangheta. That's the Calabrian mafia, and they were linked to the Serbian, Russian, Malta uh, middlemen. But they were essentially placing their their bets on this Asian sports gambling market. Mm. So. Do, that, and that's not, by the way, 
uh, Italy, just Italy. You know, you got problems yeah. in Turkey, yeah. you got problems in Greece, you got problems, as I said, in at least sixty countries around the world. When they when they fix a game, does the entire team know of the fix, or are just the leaders in the know? How do they do that without yeah, somebody it's, leaking? It's, it's an ex, it's an excellent question, and um, uh, you know, in my books, I, I actually have a chapter called "How to Fix a, a Soccer Game," mm. which is shows the the mechanisms that you use. Yeah. So ideally, uh, you'll just have the entire team, uh, which is what the Italian police uh, have have said. Is literally the owner of the team walks into the dressing room, goes, uh, "Okay, boys, don't try too hard today." And part of the professional code, I've spoken to hundreds of players, and they speak about to be a professional, you've got to know how to win, but you're also going to know how to lose well. Oh, my heavens. That's crazy. That's part of the code, the professional football code. Yeah, you know, and again, it's not it's not a spoken code. Yeah, you know, this yeah. isn't something they talk about things. And by the way, again, I want to stress this is not every single league. It's yeah, not right. every single team. But... Uh, when I testified before the European Parliament a couple of years ago, I said, look, there is a cancer in this sport, in European sport, has a cancer. And I, I would say, by the way, to, to, to my American listeners, don't get complacent. Don't get uh, cocky, because if they've destroyed these sports around the world, they're going to come for American sports. Yeah. And you want to be building your defenses now. Don't don't wait to build your fort when the Vikings have already arrived. Well, sure. They're going to you... come and... They're going to come and they're going to destroy American sports. I mean, it seems like NFL, NBA, these would all be prime candidates eventually for these these groups because there's so much money to be made. Yeah, I don't want to speculate and, and lose credibility because this is such an, an an enormous story that if some of our listeners have never heard this before, they may be sitting there going, "Hey, wow, you know." Yeah. So i i don't want to I don't want to lose credibility and, and start speculating on which American sports will, will fall vulnerable or, or would be most vulnerable. All I'm saying is to American sports fans, look, start start putting pressure on your sports officials now. This is the time when you really want to be beefing up your integrity hmm. uh, before you have a major problem. Well, I mean, it's so interesting because it's it's on the heels of the the deflate gate. I'm sure you've heard about that. And I mean, a minor issue, really, I guess, in the great yeah, deflate, scheme of things. Deflate gate and even Lance Armstrong are, are minor because the athletes are cheating to win. Mm-hmm. So oh, interesting! I yeah, that Lance Armstrong will one day be moderately rehabilitated because he was he was trying to win. Yeah, he was just doing what everybody, or excuse me, many of the other, the rest of those cyclists were doing. It was doping, but he, they were trying to win. Fixing kills sport mm-hmm. because it's it's cheating to lose. They're all faking it. They're all they're all breaking the rules, but they're trying to lose. They're they're turning sport into a theater. Man. And that's uh, that's unforgivable as far as that really is. I mean, that's, and that's an interesting little. Uh, it's a, it's an interesting dichotomy, and um, such a fascinating thing. Let's do this. We're again talking with Dr. Declan Hill, who's the author of the book The Fix: Soccer and Organized Crime. A really fascinating read. Um, an international bestseller. I think it's in sixteen languages or so. But we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to be discussing FIFA. Uh, I, w- I really want to know how come the U.S. got are the ones that are bringing these charges and the indictments. Why did it take the U.S., maybe the least football-minded country in the world, uh, to to go this way? And I uh, also want to find out just about what's going on internationally. Why why is it such a, a a big deal internationally? We'll we'll be discussing all of this and more up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show. 
You're listening to your guide on the side, the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. We are speaking with Dr. Declan Hill, who uh, is the author of the book, the international bestseller, The Fix, Soccer and Organized Crime. He's uh, he's enlightening us as to the there is a, a high level of uh, corruption in um, just sports, international sports worldwide. There's a lot of fixing going on. Um, a lot of gamblers or a gambling. Uh, glo- he's calling it the globalization has hit gambling where all of a sudden now there's a lot of money to be made in soccer or in a lot of sports, and, and fixing the game so that, uh, you know, you know who's going to win. A lot of, uh, I guess, uh, you know, mafia types, gangs, you know, illegal cartels, groups are, are, in, are in on these uh, fixes. So, Dr. Declan Hill, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me on. It's such an interesting subject, and we, we really are we're naive story, to it, aren't we? It's such yeah, a big I, I thing. I think it's a kind of an American isolationism. Yeah. Um, uh, because you guys don't follow the sports that everybody else does, you're a bit late to this particular party. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but I remember as a Canadian 10 years ago being in Europe and saying, guys, prepare, get ready. And the Europeans were like, oh, yes, well, jolly good. Yes, you're Canadian. <laughs> what, what would you know? <laughs> and, you know? And being treated with tremendous patronization. And, boy, uh, you know, I think they wish that they'd listen because this is – this really is globalization. The same way that the uh, air traffic uh, industry has been changed, you know, journalism, yeah. whole bunch of industries have been changed by globalization. So, in this weird way, illegal sports gambling has been hit by globalization, and it's just threatening international sport. I mean, Asian sport, for the most part, there's some honorable exceptions, has been devastated by fixing. And uh, really has lost sponsors, lost audiences, uh, you know, really, really lost it a lot. And by the way, just just to step back for one sec, Matt, yeah. it, this is such an extraordinary story. If there are American listeners that are just going, hey, Matt's been taken in by this guy. It can't be <laughs> happening. 60 national police investigations. I, I beg you, just check on Google. You know, just check the sad story of Taiwanese baseball that started in the early 90s with 13 teams and is now down to four. The other mm. nine have been thrown out of their league because they've been fixing so many games. Uh, same with Japanese sumo wrestling. Same with Chinese soccer, where there have been hundreds of arrests. Uh, Hong Kong, Philippines, Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia, all these places have had systemic problems. There's even a Southeast Asian uh, mini Olympics going on right now as we speak. That's been hit by fixing. So these are really systemic problems outside of the United States. And my, my plea to America is start taking this seriously before you've got the problem. I'm, I'm not coming on your radio, Matt, and yeah. suggesting that America has the problems the rest of the world does, but I'm saying, hey, get it, get your in- integrity, get the FBI, a special bureau set up now to deal with sports corruption. Talk about that, because the FBI are the ones that, of all people, again, uh, have indicted FIFA and some of the FIFA yes. leaders. Explain how the FBI got involved to go after FIFA. It's a quasi-protection racket. Here's why. If you were a criminal anywhere else in the world, you got a get-out-of-jail-free card if you were in a soccer federation. Hmm. And this has happened around the world, in Greece, in Ghana, in Iraq, excuse me, in Iran, in Poland, in many, Nigeria, many, many other countries. 
the police have moved in and they've started to investigate the soccer associations or individuals within the soccer association for tax fraud, for extortion, for racketeering, for all kinds of stuff. And the guys in Zurich, that's Seth Blatter and the, the guys, the, the Switzerland guys in FIFA, have gone to those national governments and say, if you continue with those investigations into these soccer associations, we will ban you from international soccer. Hmm. And that's a huge political threat yeah. in those countries. It is not in the United States. Right. If FIFA came and spoke to President Obama and said, you're not going to play in the World Cup because uh, you're investigating Chuck Blazer or you're investigating um, you know, the, the U.S. Soccer Federation, Obama would laugh. <laughs> Americans would laugh. Like, okay, bad us. We yeah. don't care. You know, like, we don't want to participate in some corrupt thing. But no Italian, Greek, uh, African, Asian prime minister or politician wants to be known as they kept their national team out of international soccer. So FIFA has been very good at using this. And uh, uh, really, it's been a protection racket. If you were a corrupt guy, you wanted to be part of the president. You wanted to be the soccer federation. You wanted right. to be in there because you could do anything you wanted. As yeah. soon as the cops tried to investigate you, you just phone up your buddies in Switzerland and say, hey, you know, uh, uh, get me out of jail here. That's right. Well, and billions of dollars being made, right, by, the, yeah. by FIFA. Well, that's a separate issue. The FIFA indictment by the FBI was because the FBI and Americans, and bless your heart, American status around the world has just shot up. You really done an amazing job. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're getting toasts around the world. If for foreign policy success, that <laughs> FBI investigation has been one of the most extraordinarily successful. You know, it's almost up there with the Marshall Plan. That is amazing. Celebrated yeah. around the world. When Loretta Lynch and the director of the FBI and U.S. law enforcement was doing that press conference, it was watched by hundreds of millions of people around the world, and it was being blessed by people. People that that wouldn't normally like American foreign policy mm -hmm. are loving this. <laughs> so well done, the U.S. Absolutely. That's amazing. And good work for you guys. And something that in the U.S. hardly anybody pays attention to. I mean, it's and crazy. Again, I, yeah, but I think uh, that's that's the why it it the it FBI works. was able to move in. Yeah, I was on British primetime television a couple of weeks ago when um, the FBI had done this announcement and and moved in and done the dawn raid in Switzerland and, and and arrested these guys. And I said, you know what? If I was a police detective in New Scotland Yard, I'd be going home tonight, making myself a cup of tea and staring at myself in the mirror and going, why did it take the Americans to do this? Hmm. Now, being yeah. the English, they weren't all that happy with my saying that. But it's true. You know, European police knew for years what the FBI was able to show. Um, they knew there was corruption going on in high ranks of FIFA. Uh, and uh, they didn't act. And it took the Americans to come in with that get-up-and-go attitude of America. And this is a Canadian speaking. I, I think that was the best of your country. I think you guys should be extremely proud right. of your people. Well, I think that's that's great. I mean, really, it is because I, I I sat there and I thought, wow, it's so strange. But then it's also it was interesting too that the um, when the Americans got involved in the bribe scandal of the Olympics, it also yes. kind of hit the fan again. And it it just seems like Absolutely. there's just a theme there where I, I always just assumed that international business had different rules. You know, bribing somebody international on an international level is probably more acceptable than. Than, than we would allow it to be in the United States. So is it is it a cultural thing? Is it just that, or is it just crime? 
You know what? I, I, I think in this particular case, it's because soccer is popular in the U.S., but it's not it's not inculcated in your cultural DNA yeah. at this moment. Yeah. So people are like, yeah, yeah, great, soccer, you know, very happy the ladies are doing well, the women's world. Oh, yeah, we support our men's team. But it's not like the NFL or NBA or Major League Baseball, where, where, where it's a, a passionate part of your culture. And, and so I think that was to your advantage. You know, FIFA could not threaten an American politician. They could not say to you guys, hey, if you don't stop this investigation, we're going to ban you from international sport. Right. And, and you know, again, I want to take this out of the, the, the jokey, jokey yeah. uh, uh, talk. Let me give you an example. Uh, last uh, November, uh, one of my Greek colleagues, a basket journalist in Greece, who had been doing investigations into match fixing and corruption in Greek soccer, stepped out of his apartment. Two guys armed with iron bars beat the guy into a coma. Ugh. There had been murders. There had been a series of suicides. Uh, you know, we're talking about serious crime here. And and there's kind of an image laundering going on into all this crime because it's associated with sport. People are like, oh, cool, you know, sport. And sport in some way cleans up the mm-hmm. crime. Sure. So let's make no mistake about it. This is crime. This is really deep, deep, awful crime. Is It's such an interesting um, thought that there could be uh, World Cup winners, for example, that really weren't the best team. But because of um, fixing that, in the end, the best team didn't win. I, I'm not sure about that. Okay. Uh, you know, there's 64 games played at a World Cup soccer tournament, and I, I, I would say only one or two of them have ever been, in each tournament, have been affected. Yeah. Um, most, of the, most of the top teams pay their players well. Uh, the Americans, for example, the American players a number of years ago went on strike, said we're not going to play anymore for the international, our international team until we get compensated properly. Uh, you know, fly into a place like to Gucci Galpa. We play in these, you know, these, you know, like amazingly violent stadiums where people are screaming down with gringos. You know, we, we put up with the stuff because we're proud Americans. Right. And you're not paying us properly. And, and the American team wasn't alone. Many, many of these national soccer teams rip off, exploit the players. Because, as you know, to go back to our, our point about FIFA, there are lots of bad, corrupt people in these national soccer federations. They're ripping off their players. And so the fixers are coming to these guys and saying, here, take the cash. But the, it, it doesn't happen. It's not, again, it's not the majority of the World Cup games. You're not getting yeah. to the final a series of fixed matches. You may only play in one fixed match, and as a player, you would have no idea that the other team, the players on the other team that aren't playing hard. Hmm. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Declan Hill, who's the author of the book, The Fix, Soccer and Organized Crime. Uh, he's done some immense research, really, in a very dangerous way uh, by, I guess, in, you know, somehow getting himself into gangs that yeah, are... The whole, the whole story of that, Matt, is in the book, How I Get In. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's so you're risking your life, Declan. That's crazy. But oh, cool yeah, I know. Uh, for the rest of us. Yeah. Talk about, uh, well, well, I was going to say, just talk about what you keep saying we need to be careful in the United States to not let these kind of gambling and illegal enterprises get a toehold into, into, our, into our sporting events or our sporting contests. What, what would you suggest we do? How do we, how do we protect ourselves? I'd say take a leaf out of the Afghani book. Uh, the Afghanistan, as, as you guys know, um, 
you know, like Canada, you, you, you've been serving military mission there for a long time. Yeah. There's something called a loya herga, which is where you get a huge tent, basically, and you get every, quote, stakeholder that's got a, got a, um, you know, a stake in a particular problem into that tent. And then they just talk for weeks until they come up with solutions. And, and here are a couple of solutions. One is, and this is going to strike people as really weird, but consider legalizing gambling. Hmm. Because once you legalize gambling, you can read the gambling odds much more easily. There are now companies set up around the world that monitor those odds for fixing, for, you know, to to check if anything bad has happened. So there was just, you know, literally three days ago, there was a game in China. Uh, uh, You know, there's a billion dollar league, soccer league in China, and they could see the odd movements in one of the particular games just didn't make any sense. And so they called in their cops and they investigated whether there's fixing going on. Oh, interesting. Two, yeah. set up a, 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 a special bureau inside either the FBI or, uh, you know, a large cop things. Because what happens is you got a fixing situation going on in, say, Taiwanese baseball or whatever. You go to the cops and they have no clue what's going on. Yeah. They're like, what? Like, yeah, look, I'm dealing with drug guys. Can you just back off? Like... So you want somebody who understands how serious it is, why it's serious, you know, that it's dealing with millions of dollars potentially and washing uh, the cash of drug dealers, whatever. So you don't have to go back to zero every time you walk into a cop shop. So just set up that integrity, set up three or four uh, special people in the United States, and then every major sports league from the NCAA upwards should have a whistleblower protection uh, place put in, put in place. So if a young player is approached to fix a game either by his colleagues or by his, uh, you know, his teammates or by the owner or some mafiosi guy comes in, yeah, he's got a, a secret anonymous uh, whistleblowing hotline that he can phone. It's outside of the NCAA. It's, it's a completely separate organization. And he can say, look, I've just been approached by this guy. I was in a bar. He seemed to be making these jokes, but like he just creeped me out. I don't know what to do. You know, I, I don't want to scare anyone, but he says my coach is receiving cash as well. What do I do? So you just have those whistleblower hotlines. You have that protection, and and uh, you can win this battle. I, I believe yeah. that we can beat this battle back, but these are some simple, simple stuff that can be done. I love that. I mean, that, they're very basic, aren't they? But And, and do, do you sense that that just... Do you sense we've already lost Asia and other areas? Oh, yes. They just can't... Yes. You can't go back. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. Well, why would you... Watch a Chinese soccer game, right? If you know, if you know, it's ninety percent of them are fixed. It's it's not that you know ninety percent of them are fixed. It's that you know there's a lot of fixing going on. Mm. So some guy scores a hat trick. He he runs down the field, scores an amazing goal, and you're standing in the stadium and you're like, "Is that for real?" <laughs> and as soon as you got that question yeah. in your mind, Matt, it's over. Your sport is killed. It's true, huh? As soon as the as soon as the audience, the spectators are going, you know what? I can't actually believe this. This is about the credibility of the game. It's not about necessarily whether the fix occurred or didn't occur. It's they just think that it occurred. Mm. I mean, how sad is that? I mean, to to have that happen in the United States would be horrible. I don't know, guys, uh, like like protect yourself now. Yeah. The, the reason why you haven't. Uh, why you haven't had major scandals is one, nobody's been looking for them. And two, the globalized sports gambling market has not been interested in your sports. Mm-hmm. NFL is huge in the United States. It's not relatively all that big around the world. Yeah. Um, 
once it comes, you know, it's a very attractive product, as everybody who's listening to us knows. Once American sports get caught on around the world, you're going to face these problems in a major, major way if you're unprepared. So prepare yourself now. Well, it's, I think it's great advice. Uh, Dr. Declan Hill, thank you so much. And thanks for your great uh, research and just your professionalism. I think you're, you're making oh, a huge Matt, difference. Again, thank you so much, man. Thanks for having me on. I very much appreciate it. You bet. And we Good recommend to everybody, go check out that book, The Fix, Soccer and Organized Crime. You can also go to Declan Hill's website, DeclanHill.com, D-E-C-L-A-N-H-I-L-L.com. Declan Hill. And just learn all about his investigative journalism work and um, his academic work as well. A high level of quality. It's it's rare that you see that uh, in the sports world. Such incredible uh, journalistic and academic uh, credentials as well. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back and continue this discussion of uh, cheating. A little Coach's Corner up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. A little coach's corner for you here. Uh, when it comes to cheating, we've been talking about international sports and FIFA, for example, and the, the level of cheating there. Also, um, we've seen it in the Olympic scandals. We've seen it uh, even locally. I mean, not locally, but on a, on a more um, kind of in-your-face level. Uh, Pete Rose was has basically just admitted that he actually did bet on games while in the pros, but not his games, apparently. But, you know, cheating. From Deflategate, some will just say that's not a big deal. Our last guest, Dr. Declan Hills, like there's a difference between cheating to win versus cheating to lose. Uh, cheating to lose is, is an epidemic uh, where they're actually basically fixing games worldwide. But where does this begin and and where does it where do we take it for our kids? Um it's I see a lot of situations where even in little league sports it's a win kind of at all costs. And so you can win the game and lose your character, right? You can also lose the game and gain character. Character is probably the thing I'd end up focusing more on when it uh, when it, with my kids is start teaching your kids about in the end, everything we do when it comes to sports is gonna is going to increase our character, or de- decrease our character, and, and we probably need to watch out because um, kids at seven, eight, nine, they might be fibbing or lying or cheating for different reasons than you as an adult might be interpreting. You know, they might be doing it because they just really like to win. They might be doing it because. Uh, they didn't, you know, know it was that big of a deal. So be careful calling your kid a cheater. Be careful calling your child a liar. Uh, labels aren't always going to help, you know. In the end, it's it's got to be more than just a label. You, we've got to be teaching our kids and trying to understand what's really going on. You might want to find out why they do what they do. I've seen kids cheat to, you know, win Scrabble or just other games just because they're seriously competitive. But you might want to also build a relationship with your kids where we're we're talking about some of these bigger issues. Talk about Lance Armstrong. Talk about um, 
winning at all costs and, you know, the Machiavellian way of, you know, the ends justify the means. If you believe that as a parent, that it's okay, as long as your kid can get a scholarship, you can break a few of the rules, can't you? It's a really intense thing. And and the more I work with athletes and um, especially athletes that have had a lot of talent that has taken them to another level, the more I realize that these people haven't lived a normal life. A lot of athletes I work with that are even professional or even Olympic athletes, they a lot of times have never been told no. They've never heard no. They have always been able to be winning, and if, as long as you're winning, no is not going to be in your vocabulary. So watch out, because sometimes we might be esteeming sports and athlete, and athletics at a higher level than even character and, and development and growth. So don't assume just because your boy is playing sports that uh, they're just learning good character. You probably need to make sure you talk about it. Uh, if you see a kid throw their bat because they just struck out, that's probably something that needs to be discussed. We've got to teach our kids to win gracefully, to lose gracefully, and um, not just, you know, ah, he's just a boy, he's super competitive. No, at some point, show some character and, and teach that character. I think one of the best ways to do it is basically demand it. Like, tell your kids, this is how we are. Pull them out of the game. Don't let them play if you see them throwing the bat. Don't let them play if you see them do something dirty or a penalty on the field. And I think if we teach it to them early and we don't just keep justifying bad behavior by boys will be boys, then then you might be able to take it somewhere. Um, I also would focus more on when they're doing something right than when they're doing something wrong. Don't just try to catch your child doing something wrong. Start noticing when they're actually showing good sportsmanship, when they're act- when they are walking back after a strikeout and doing it effectively. That's such a great skill, and the best way I've ever found to actually teach it is to see when it's happening. Uh, get into your kids. Find out why they might be lying. Have a chance to talk to them after every game. Talk about what happened there. Hey, I noticed you threw your bat when you got in the dugout. Uh, what's that about? And then go back to our, our discussion of principles and character. Um, keep your cool. If you end up having a beat down and because your child did strike out, if you end up making a big deal about that, you are going to be creating pressure, and that pressure might be the reason they have to they feel compelled to cheat or to do something wrong. Anyway, folks, it's it's parenting as well. And it sounds like according to Declan Hill, our the interview that we had earlier, you know, the United States has a really great benefit here where we're not as caught up in some of these international cheating scandals. But uh if we're not careful, we probably could be. So let's 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 cut it off and let's start teaching. Teaching our kids. Start with character, integrity, and model it for our kids. Don't just ask our kids to have it. You model it as their parents. We'll take a break. Come back next hour. More ideas, more tools to help you find the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your relationship coach, your guide on the side. 
doing what we can on this program to help you live longer and love stronger. So welcome to the program. we got a great show for you. As a new grandpa, as a new grandpa, I look at my son-in-law and my daughter. They're bringing home their baby, and I think, okay, they need some time with that kid. But then I look at my son-in-law, self-employed basically. He's got to get out and go make a living to pay for all of this uh, wonderful joy. But uh, in a few minutes, we're going to be interviewing um, a, a great, I think, uh, a great resource for for all of us when it comes to um, paid leave, paid family and parental leave. Um, we will be talking about does it really pay off in a lot of places uh, in California, for example, they have already initiated family paid and parental leave um, where you can take a break. And go spend some time with your new baby. Uh, Ruth Milkman will be joining us. She's a sociologist from the University of New York. She'll be giving us the latest and greatest insight into parental leave, the benefits and and the costs of it. Does it actually ever help you break even as an organization? Um, We'll be talking about that with with, uh, Ruth Milkman in just a minute. But before we go there, let's get to the headlines, talk to Terry South, find out if there's anything going on around the world we need to be paying attention to. Terry, what's up? Do you sleepwalk? No, I don't. Have you ever sleepwalked? Uh, No, I've never. I never have sleptwalked. I did wake up one time in the middle of Central Park. Okay. I don't know how I did that. It was strange. Were you in New York? No. That's what was weird. That's the weird part. Uh I was actually in Milwaukee. Interesting. And somehow I must have slept flight. Flew. Flew. Slept flew. That sounded so wrong. (laughs) And then ended up in the middle of the park. So do you sleepwalk? I have once that I know of. But see, I think that's a a misthought because how would you know? Because my mother caught me. I was about 10, okay. and I walk up the back, the, the stairs. She heard me walking around yeah. upstairs, and I opened the back door, and she goes, Terry. I went, yeah. yeah. She goes, what are you doing? Went, oh, and then I just went back to bed. Just sneaking out, Mom. I was just leaving in <laughs> my pajamas. My um, I, my wife says I snore, and I, I know that's not true. You probably snore. Because I've never, ever heard myself snore. It's not really when you hear yourself, mostly, because you're asleep. Exactly. But you wake her up. Yeah. Yeah. But do you trust that? I mean, maybe she just sleep hears. Does she snore? Be careful with this one. Absolutely not. There you go. Good she, answer. Right answer. She's she. You know what? She sounds like just a cute little baby squeaky toy. And for the record, neither does my wife. That's good. Let's keep it clean. <laughs> keep it like that. They I do just... have recordings of weird things, but that's fine. Um, Why? What does it matter? A, a if study. I sleepwalk. Nearly eighty percent of people who've injured themselves while sleepwalking felt no pain and didn't even wake up according to a new study published this month in Sleep which is a 80% felt magazine. no pain 80% felt no pain and didn't wake up wow okay that's interesting he goes and we're not talking about a stub toe or a bumped elbow either one study subject jumped out of a third floor window suffering multiple fractures Severe fractures. Felt nothing. And didn't feel any pain until waking up later. This was according to the American Academy of Sleep Medicine in a press release. Well, didn't he wake up when he broke his legs? It doesn't say. It says when he woke up later. It didn't say he woke up when he broke his legs, so I'm not sure. What if you broke your legs and just slept through it? 
And you wake up, you're like, what happened? You wake up in a trash bag somewhere. <laughs> that is um, – but the 80% is interesting. Have you uh, – I've actually pulled one of my kid's teeth when he was asleep. Interesting. He was – he wouldn't let me pull his tooth, but it was like – it was flapping in the wind. Okay. So I guess he would breathe in, the tooth would flop in. Ugh. And as he'd breathe out, it would flop out. That really needed to come out, and yes. I'm like, you can, you're going to swallow that. So yeah. the minute he went to bed, I just pulled his tooth. Right. See, weird. now, I don't necessarily believe this study because as a kid, I would mess with my brother when he was asleep. Yeah. And you're like poking him and punching him and I, stuff, and he'd always wake up. I know. That's weird. Yeah. But he wasn't sleepwalking. That's probably the that's difference. That's probably the thing. You're, you're asleep enough that your cognitive ability to stand up and move is functioning, but your being conscious is not. I, Which is weird. <laughs> a weird... Se- <laughs> but, okay, so what is the difference, though? Be, because I get up every once in a while in the middle of the night. Okay. <laughs> and I just do it just to walk around so right. everything's okay. But I was uh, I was in the latrine. Okay. And next thing I know, I'm hitting my head against the wall. <laughs> you fell asleep. I fell asleep and fell to the side yeah. and actually caught myself. I caught myself. And but I was like, man, I just slept. You just yeah, you fell asleep. Slept, went to the restroom. (laughs) So it says it was the same for another person who fell off his roof and broke his leg while sleepwalking. Hmm. Of the 100 sleepwalkers studied by a French research team, 47 percent reported injuring themselves while sleepwalking at least once. But only 10 actually woke up immediately from the pain. The study's lead researcher, Dr. Regis Lopez, says that those numbers are surprising, according to the uh, the the sleep uh, organization that we just we mentioned before. Our results may help to understand the mechanisms of the sleepwalking episodes. We hypothesize that a disassociate state of arousal may modify the components of sleepwalking behavior, consciousness, and also pain perception. Mm-hmm. As the International Business Times simplifies. Researchers believe that there's some sort of connection between sleepwalking and the neurons that send pain signals to the spinal cord and the brain. Holy cow. The study also found sleepwalkers are nearly four times more likely to report a history of headaches and ten times more likely to report suffering from migraines while awake. Interesting. So they're saying there may be something that disconnects the neurons that send pain signals to the spinal cord and the brain while you're sleepwalking. So you have to study sleepwalkers to find out really how to disconnect pain from your life. This could be exciting. They could find something really interesting. I I don't think I could be a sleepwalker. Like I'm too self-conscious. I'm too like I I'm like I can hear when my kids get home without slamming the door. Right. I'm a very light sleeper. So I'm not – I think you have to be – I don't know. You have to have a whole different level it seems like of – but you slept walking. You're Just pretty, once. Yeah. But I was a kid. That's what you say. I was later. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I say. Uh, but if you go on YouTube and look up <laughs> Sleepwalk Terry. Yeah, there I am. There's 100 videos. Walking there. down the street. Yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. But, boy, the pain thing's weird. Yeah. Hmm. So, but right at the end, there's a, a, a link to another article. Yeah. And it says there's a 29% chance that you have sleptwalked before. Interesting. Apparently, it's, it's common 29% of the population. I wonder uh, what makes a sleepwalker. You know what I mean? In yeah. the end, what's going to, what's the, what's the key? What drives somebody? Would it be similar to like dreams? 
where your something in your life motivates you and you just keep, your your mind doesn't rest right to the point where your body can be completely separated consciously and then but your physical body just wants to go yeah you know so you fall into that deep sleep but your body's able to function you're able to walk around yeah like we had the story just a couple of weeks ago the woman that uh, fell asleep they they think she went sleepwalking because when she woke up she was nine miles away <laughs> to her uncle's couch or yeah. something she was kidnapped yeah that, there's no doubt there was that. aliens in that one i um but i could sleep eat me too don't you think yeah i mean i've gotten up just for a little bit of mac and cheese like, where did that pizza go <laughs> You're like, there's one more slice. I know my kids will eat it in the morning if I don't get it in the middle of the night. I was night. planning on that for breakfast, That's but right. I feel oddly full. This is crazy. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but I've, I have this pepperoni taste in my mouth. It feels I like I ate a loaf of bread, too. What happened? That's so sad. Well, that's pathetic. Well, man, at least, at least when you're sleepwalking, you're not going to feel pain. That's good news. That's, that's, that's the news brought to you by the Matt Townsend Show. There you go. Rest easy. Well done, Terry. It's science. It's science. It's as simple as that. Uh, Coming up in just a few minutes, we're going to be talking about parental leave. You hear about a lot of people talking about it. They bring it up in the debates, the Democratic and the GOP debates. You know, is it a good idea that we give everybody a a, a leave when they're having a family or an issue going on at home? A new baby being born? You know what? Does it pay off? We're going to get into it, talking to an expert on the subject. Stick with us. Dr. Ruth Milkman will be joining us, a sociologist from the University of New York, giving us the insight. It's an interview we did a few months ago when we're replaying it for you after the break. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, with the new House Speaker Paul Ryan in place, we know he was so pro-family, but he's been getting a lot of uh, pushback because he's pro-family, but he also votes against parental leave, where the parents would have some time, paid time off, to go be with their children um, in certain situations, especially uh, right after a birth of a child, and it's an interesting discussion that's that's uh, appeared, and we wanted to go back to our archives and find one of our favorite old interviews, old meaning within the last year. We interviewed Dr. Ruth Milkman on parental leave back in May in 26, and she talks about the 2002 um, California became the first U.S. state to guarantee six weeks of paid leave for mothers and fathers alike, financed by small payroll tax contributions from eligible workers. But since then, other uh, states like Rhode Island, New Jersey, have followed suit with four and six paid weeks off, respectively, while other states are taking steps with similar policies. Now, does it work? Many of the tech giants would say and argue that it does. They want it to be beyond a government mandate. Google offers men seven weeks of paid leave. Yahoo 8, Reddit and Facebook, a generous 17 weeks of paid leave. Unfortunately, this is not the norm across the United States, despite what the studies say. And because of that, we've asked um, we're going to be replaying Dr. Ruth Milken's interview that she uh, did with us back in May. Now, when I started the interview, I basically started with one simple question. The main issue is about money. So how do we pay for the program? In politics, it seems like we are talking out of two sides of our face. Um, One side, we're all pro-family. Love family, love the kids. Let's have a bunch of them. 
other side, nobody wants to pay for them. Nobody wants to give the leave for the parents to go take care of these kids. It seems like it seems like it's 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 about the money in the end. Is that is that what you're seeing in the research? Well, what we found was actually a little different. Um, this is a political crossover issue for some of the reasons you just mentioned. People do care about families and children in this country. Even. Yeah. <laughs> and our, it's true that our public policy is rather backward by world standards. Virtually every other affluent country has um, extensive paid leave for parents. Um, but actually the only opposition politically comes from what I call organized business, that is employers and their chambers of commerce and so on, and not oh. even all employers. Yeah. Um, everybody else is for it. All the polls show this. So – the, so the people the are for it, it's, and, and even it's it just business. Overwhelming numbers, conservative and liberal, yeah. and any other group that you might name. Now, but and, but then some big business, uh, Yahoo, you know, Google, Facebook. Um, wh- why are they so for it? Well, the more enlightened business people have recognized that this actually is good for them in many ways. It creates higher morale among employees. Um, it also helps them hold on to workers that they want to hold on to. In other words, turnover is reduced by having um, leave policies. Even if there isn't a requirement that you come back to the same employer, which a lot of them don't require, still the fact that you can get some kind of compensation during the period you're off from work to take care of a new baby or whatever, um, you know, creates loyalty. Yeah. So for all those reasons, many employers have um, begun to recognize the advantages of this. Where you see the biggest problem is in is not so much in those companies you mentioned, but in um, employers that are famous for their low wages and their squeezing of labor. Mm. They see workers as disposable, and they're not interested in offering any benefits. You know, we saw this before Obamacare, too, in the health care world. Um, those are the workers who were left out. And so in the U.S., in the state, you know, 47 states lack any kind of state policy. Right. I don't know if you're going to ask me about the California law, which yeah. Now also exists something similar in New Jersey and Rhode Island. But in all the other states, the way it works is if you have these benefits, you have them at the pleasure of your employer. And so some employers do offer them, but mostly to professionals and managers, not to workers who need it the most, those who are struggling to survive every day at the very bottom of the labor market. They're the ones who are least likely to have these benefits. That's what I read. I think it was from your study on the California Parental Leave uh, Act uh, is – the, it was it was the lower kind of earning employees were, that really benefited the very most from exactly the California right. policy. Yeah, talk, and elsewhere too. Talk to so, us how the California policy worked. Well, it, it's the present tense you can use because it's still there. It's still working. Um, yeah, yeah, it still works. It's been a, that's the oldest program. It was it was legislated in two thousand and two and took effect in two thousand and four. So there's more than a decade now mm. of experience with it. How it works is this: um, California, along with those other two states I mentioned. That is Rhode Island and New Jersey, and, a, and another state that has this but does not have paid family leave is New York, by the way, where I live, which is sort of behind the curve here. Yeah. I'm embarrassed to say. Anyway, those four states and also Hawaii and Puerto Rico have something called temporary disability insurance. They've had it since the 1940s. And what that is, it's different from workers' compensation, which you and your listeners probably are familiar with. This is if you say you break your leg at home one weekend and you can't work for a while. Yeah. You can get paid by the state 
temporary disability insurance for an off-job injury of some kind or some temporary disability. And those laws were extended to cover pregnancy in the 1970s when the women's movement, you know, was agitating for that. Um, so, and they're supported by a very um, modest tax, a payroll tax on workers, sometimes on employers too. It varies from state to state. Um, that it, it ends up being about 1% of payroll. This is very modest. And then you can draw on that benefit if you need it, either for a temporary disability, like a broken leg or a heart attack or whatever, or a pregnancy. So that's been around for a long, long time. And what California did, followed by those other two states, is to build on that program with its existing administrative bureaucracy and everything. You know, you didn't have to start from scratch. Right. Um, to add this additional benefit for bonding with a new baby for both men and women, or for caring for um, a seriously ill family member, you know, it could be an elderly person or anybody. Mm -hmm. Well, not quite anybody. There's like a list of relatives that are eligible. <laughs> so, so anyway, that's what the program was. And so what it offers is six weeks of wage replacement for those purposes. And that began in 2004. Wow. Um, so it's only six weeks, which by world standards is very limited. Um, it's very inexpensive because, you know, that program was already there, and so the tax went up very slightly. Um, and it has benefited a lot of people. But, so that's well, the essence of how it works. And, let, and, and could they also then – they could still get their 12 weeks of unpaid, but they could also get six weeks of paid. Well, they overlap, actually. Oh, do they so overlap? Okay, so you get an additional the, six. Yeah, you're talking about the FMLA, yeah, uh -huh. the federal law, which passed in 1993. Now, that covers only about half of new mothers. Okay. Oh, really? Um, it has a lot of exclusions. So you have to work for a company that has more than 100 uh, – I'm sorry, I'm not remembering. But anyway, there's a minimum number of workers. Yeah. Um, and it has you have to bid on the job for a certain period of time and so on. So it excludes tons of people. Oh, wow. So, you know, some people are covered by both. Yeah. Now, what that law has, if you are covered by it, the federal law, um, it offers job protection. That is, the employer cannot refuse to hire you back after a leave, even if it is unpaid. The fact that it's unpaid, of course, makes it useless for a lot of right. low-paid Right. You're not going to – yeah, you can't but, live. But, you, but the California law does not have that job protection feature, unfortunately. So if you're covered by FMLA, or actually there's a California law that's similar to it, that's, anyway, it's called CIFRA, that um, then you're, you've got both job protection and some wage replacement. And by the way, it's not 100% of your pay. It's 55%. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, so it, you know, it's still much better than zero. It is. And especially, again, for kind of maybe the lower income earners, it's, it's a big deal maker. It's a big deal. Uh, who yeah. may not have the savings, who may not have, you know, the, the comfort zone to – to, to play with that. Let's take a break. We're, again, we're talking with Dr. Ruth Milkman, who is a professor of sociology at City University of New York. We're going to come back. I want to ask her the benefits altogether of these programs. How, how does it benefit society? Again, if we're one of the two of the only countries, uh, you know, that, that is not into giving this type of paid leave uh, for our, our mothers that are having babies and fathers that are having children. I mean, let's... Let's figure out why. Let's figure out what the benefits are and what we may be really missing out on. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the line with us is Dr. Ruth Milkman. She's a professor of sociology at City University of New York. 
Graduate Center, and we are picking uh, her brain, quite honestly, trying to find out about parental leave. It seems like such a pro-family idea, and yet the businesses against are so against it. Um, but what are your beliefs? Should a mom or a dad be home with their newborn baby? And should it be paid? Now, I get it. I'm a small business owner. I know how hard it is to to pay for something like this. I really, truly do. And yet we're talking a lot about how much family values matter to us. We wanted to find out from a, a sociologist and a, an expert in labor issues. Um, again, Dr. Ruth, Ruth Milkman, welcome back to the show. Thank you. By the way, the employers don't pay a penny for it. It's paid 100 percent by workers. It's paid exactly. The well, it, oh, is it in California? In Actually, California, no, so they just well. pay yeah. an additional tax. The, the payroll tax, which is very modest, you know, because at any given time, yeah. very few people are using this, so that's why it's cheap. It's like you know, when you have any other kind of right. it's insurance. Yeah. So, you know, you have the event once in a while, and then you draw on it. The rest of the time, you pay a small premium, very small in this case, like one percent of your. Of your income. I mean, again, to me, that seems like uh, uh, something we should all embrace, and yet it, uh, I guess you. the businesses yeah. are still fighting against it. I think well, I saw a study, are, 98% you know, fight, of them. Yes, and they, well, I don't even know if it's that high, but the, the Chambers of Commerce and other kind of organized entities of business tend to resist any kind of regulation, as you probably yeah, know. Sure. So if you want to pass a, an increase in the minimum wage, they're against that. Yeah. Any, I mean, my joke is if you passed a, tried to propose a law that says employees have the right to breathe in the workplace, the chamber would lobby. <laughs> Hold against. it. You know, they just don't like being told what to do. I understand yeah. that. I don't either. But this is, you know, the needs of people trump that, yeah. in my view. Talk, and so, talk about you know. the benefits of it. I mean, there there are one, – one of the things I know that came out of your study is uh, there's more breastfeeding going on of these babies. Yes. I mean, talk right. about more so, of the benefits. Well, so it's kind of obvious. You know, if you have um, – time to bond with a new baby, you're going to have a better experience as a parent, and the baby's going to have a better experience, too. It's, um, so breastfeeding rates are higher. Obviously, it's easier to do that if you don't have to be on the job and also be you know, juggling that with caring for a new child. Um, people report, I mean, again, all this is sort of obvious. Yeah. People report it's easier to find child care and make arrangements for that, you know, if you don't have to go back to work the second after the baby's born. Yeah. Um, uh, ill family members, not just babies, but, you know, again, it can be used for caring for a, an ill family member, recover faster hmm. um, if they're cared for by a family member than if it's, you know, a stranger. So there's a lot of, you know, really major benefits. I think everybody kind of knows that. Well, I mean, and just the space to emotionally deal with it all. I mean, it, Well, right, you know? and that's why it's called bonding leave, too, because hmm. the idea is that for both fathers and mothers, um, this is an opportunity to spend some time with a new baby and really, you know, build that bond. Um, that's actually the official term for those leaves. Hmm. Why, so, why, why are other countries so ahead of the game? I mean, like <laughs> well, Sweden, I think we saw Sweden has more than a year of leave. Yeah, and most European countries have had something, you know, Sweden is the extreme, right. have had something fairly, you know, much more generous than the California law since like the 1940s. I mean, this is, and partly they did it for demographic reasons in those countries. They were interested in, um, especially after World War II, when Populations were so decimated by the war in building, rebuilding their population and encouraging birth. Oh, that's interesting. So yeah, that was that, was that was that was helpful. More, and they also had more regulated economies generally in that period. You know, this is changing now, but although not on the family leave front, but um, that you know they were social democracies that really believed in government having a major role in the economy. So this was just one piece of that. It's so interesting. I mean, it's got to be. 
it's got to be interesting research for you to see that now California has put something together. It is still a tax, but it's a tax that, you know, every grant, everybody's, you know, we're all benefited by being born. Hello. And yeah. so it yeah, seems like exactly. something we could all get our heads around and at least appreciate. No, that's absolutely right. So um, and I think, you know, again, the tax is very small. Most yeah. people don't even know it's in their pay. You know, it's one of many things that come out of your paycheck. So yeah. Um, and the other thing that's, you, you know, um, extraordinarily positive, in my view, about this law is that it um, it does cover both genders and it doesn't exclude anyone. Unlike the federal law that we were talking about right. earlier, there are no carve outs. So everybody's covered. Everybody's the covered. The exception is self. Well, that's not quite true. The exceptions are self-employed people can opt into it, but they're not automatically covered. They would have to pay the tax mm. like they would, you know, with other such taxes. And then. Um, Public sector workers are not covered, but the majority of them, not all, but most have some kind of equivalent coverage I love through that, either a collective bargaining agreement or just through government work. You know, yeah. But there are some that are left out, so it's not quite everybody, but way better than the federal law in that respect. Well, I appreciate it. Again, um, Dr. Ruth Milkman, and just to know that it, we're testing something else, and it – and it can work. There, there are answers out there, folks. So maybe talk to your congressman, your legislators, and see, see what's going on. Maybe they could follow the the model now that's gone all over Rhode Island's into it now. Um, a lot of other states are looking into the California uh, pa- uh, Paid Family Leave Act as well. Well, we appreciate Dr. Ruth Milkman. We're going to take a break, uh, folks. Again, we're just trying to give you the, the ideas, the tools. Um, the reality is we got to use our brains, right? We, we, we can have our beliefs and think. Let's just start thinking. If we believe in families, we've got to facilitate family. And as a grandpa-to-be, I'd love my daughter to be able to have a little break as, as she's having our grandchild. Um, it just seems like basic common sense as Dr. Ruth Milkman was explaining to us. We'll take a break, my friends. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. To the Matt Townsend Show, a little coach's corner here. Um, you know, boundaries, whatever you want to call them, and a lot of people are like, blah, blah, blah. That's just a lot of gobbledygook from the uh, therapists of the world. But the reality is you are uh, you're an agent, right? You are a person that is supposed to be um, acting, not here to just be acted upon. Your job as a human being is to get out there and make something happen in your life. And if you want to just, you know, be let everybody else influence their will upon you and just run you over, then you can do that. But there's a consequence, I truly believe, when you are a human being on this earth and you give up your freedom to, to live your life. And I think you're just going to suffer because inside deep inside every human being is a will a willpower and um 
an, an intelligence, whatever you want to call it, a spirit that is there to, to make something happen with your opportunities here on earth. Not necessarily going to be always easy, but it, whatever it is, it's yours. It's all yours. And you kind of need to know that. So if you have somebody in your life that is, you know, literally just overloading you, uh, overwhelming you, just over, you know, over empowering, over overpowering you, um, you have a you have a choice here. Now, if you don't see the choice, then you can't fix it. So part of this is starting to see the choices you have in life. And don't always go with the first choice of, oh, well, I just got to leave. I just can't take this anymore. I've got to leave. Well, if, if you can't take it anymore, leaving won't necessarily help you take it any better. So what I might work on before you leave is learning how to understand what's going on, learning how to make better choices about it, and learning how to change it. You just need to make one change, and you change everything. And I've seen that so many times, just one partnership, one partner in a marriage, for example, can change the entire deal. I don't even need you to want to change. But if I change, you're going to have to change. If I decide to no longer get angry at you being angry at me, that's going to change the game. You you are now going to have to deal with me looking at you and just smiling like you are acting like a baby. If I don't react to it, if I don't throw the tantrum, if I don't run out and slam the door, and I just look at you and try to understand. So tell me what you're trying to do here and try to understand you. It's going to change the game. Two heads are better than one in a marriage, but one head is better than zero. And usually in, in these marriages where, or relationships where we have no boundaries, nobody's head is in the game. And when nobody's head's in the game, we just end up, you know, spinning and we let the most messed up of us lead the game. And we see that in policy, in government. We see that in so many different ways. One person in our country does something incredibly stupid, and then everyone reacts to it. And we could justify all of our reactions by, well, that was stupid. Well, yeah, so so was your reaction to what was stupid. And we can stop it. One of my favorite quotes, a quote I told you I'd be sharing with you, is a quote by Marianne Williamson. This is a quote that Nelson Mandela apparently um, quoted at his inaugural address, okay? This is a quote he used when he was inaugurated. He says, our greatest fear—this is from Marianne Williamson—it is not light—our uh, greatest fear is light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. He says, our, de- our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure— It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us. It's in every one of us. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. Your greatest fear in life is not that you're a weak, pathetic clod. Your greatest fear is that you're powerful beyond measure, and you're so afraid of that that you don't do anything about it. 
because that's too hard. You are amazing, talented, fabulous. Your job is to just go live like it. You are a being of infinite worth. So instead of us shrinking, because the minute I shrink and don't take charge of my life, then I give permission for you to shrink and not take charge of your life. So I blame you for my problems. You blame me. And we both go down the drain together. Folks, uh, boundaries, it's not a bunch of gobbledygook. It's about you choosing to become a change in your life. So I challenge you as a coach. Get out there. You become the change. Quit waiting for everyone else in the world to change for you. You become the change that you seek in the world. And when you do that, I'm telling you, you're going to find the peace. You will find the peace. That's the Coach's Corner and the end of the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. 